Section 30 of Volume 1F of History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 30, Chapter 68, Part 4. The king, who had hitherto employed the most gracious expressions to all his parliaments, particularly the two last, thought proper to address himself to the present in a more authoritative manner. He complained of the unwarranted proceedings of the former House of Commons, and said that, as he would never use arbitrary government himself, neither would he ever suffer it in others. By calling, however, this Parliament so soon, he had sufficiently shown that no past irregularities could inspire him with a prejudice against those assemblies. He now afforded them, he added, yet another opportunity of providing for the public safety, and to all the world had given one more evidence that on his part he had not neglected the duty incumbent on him. The commons were not overawed by the magisterial air of the king's speech. They consisted almost entirely of the same members, they chose the same speaker, and they instantly fell into the same measures, the impeachment of Danby, the repealing of the persecuting statute of Elizabeth, the inquiry into the popish plot, and the bill of exclusion. So violent were they on this last article, that no other expedient, however plausible, could so much as be hearkened to. Earnley, one of the king's ministers, proposed that the duke should be banished during life five hundred miles from England, and that on the king's demise the next heir should be constituted regent with regal power. Yet even this expedient, which left the duke only the bare title of king, could not, though seconded by Sir Thomas Littleton and Sir Thomas Mompesson, obtain the attention of the House. The past disappointments of the country party, and the opposition made by the court, had only rendered them more united, more haughty, and more determined. No method but their own, of excluding the duke, could give them any satisfaction. There was one Fitzharris, an Irish Catholic, who had insinuated himself into the Duchess of Portsmouth's acquaintance, and had been very busy in conveying to her intelligence of any libel written by the country party, or of any designs entertained against her or against the court. For services of this kind, and perhaps too from a regard to his father, Sir Edward Fitzharris, who had been an eminent royalist, had received from the king a present of two hundred and fifty pounds. This man met with one Everard, a Scotchman, a spy of the exclusionist, and an informer concerning the popish plot, and he engaged him to write a libel against the king, the duke, and the whole administration. What Fitzharris's intentions were we cannot well be ascertained. It is probable as he afterwards asserted, that he meant to carry this libel to his patron, the Duchess, and to make a merit of the discovery. 
Everard, who suspected some other design, and who was well pleased on his side to have the merit of a discovery with his patrons, resolved to betray his friend. He posted Sir William Waller, a noted justice of peace, and two persons more, behind the hangings, and gave them an opportunity of seeing and hearing the whole transaction. The libel, sketched out by Fitzharris, and executed partly by him, partly by Everard, was the most furious, indecent, and outrageous performance imaginable, and such as was fitter to hurt than serve any party which should be so imprudent as to adopt it. Waller carried the intelligence to the king, and obtained a warrant for committing Fitzharris, who happened at that very time to have a copy of the libel in his pocket. Finding himself now delivered over to the law, he resolved to pay court to the popular party, who were alone able to protect him, and by whom he observed almost all trials to be governed and directed. He affirmed that he had been employed by the court to write the libel, in order to throw the odium of it on the exclusionist. But this account, which was within the bounds of credibility, he disgraced by circumstances which were altogether absurd and improbable. The intention of the ministers, he said, was to send about copies to all the heads of the country party, and the moment they received them, they were to be arrested, and a conspiracy to be imputed to them. That he might merit favor by still more important intelligence, he commenced a discoverer of the great popish plot, and he failed not to confirm all the tremendous circumstances insisted on by his predecessors. He said that the Second Dutch War was entered into with a view of extirpating the Protestant religion, both abroad and at home, that Father Perry, a Jesuit, on the disappointment by the peace, told him that the Catholics resolved to murder the king, and had even engaged the queen in that design, that the envoy of Medina offered him two thousand pounds to kill the king, and upon his refusal the envoy said that the Duchess of Mazarin, who was as expert at poisoning as her sister, the Countess of Soissons, would, with a little feel, execute that design, that upon the king's death the army in Flanders was to come over and massacre the Protestants, that money was raised in Italy for recruits and supplies, and there should be no more parliaments, and that the duke was privy to this whole plan, and had even entered into the design of Godfrey's murder, which was executed in the manner related by France. The popular leaders had all along been very desirous of having an accusation against the duke, and though Oates and Bedloe, in their first evidence, had not dared to go so far, both Dugdale and Dangerfield had afterwards been encouraged to supply so material a defect by comprehending him in the conspiracy. The commons, therefore, finding that Fitzharris was also willing to serve this purpose, were not ashamed to adopt his evidence, and resolved for that end to save him from the destruction which he was at present threatened. The king had removed him from the city prison where he was exposed to be tampered with by the exclusionist, had sent him to the tower, and had ordered him to be prosecuted by an indictment at common law. In order to prevent his trial and execution, an impeachment was voted by the commons against him, and sent up to the lords. 
that they might show the greater contempt of the court, they ordered, by way of derision, that the impeachment should be carried up by Secretary Jenkins, who was so provoked by the intended affront, that he at first refused obedience, though afterwards, being threatened with commitment, he was induced to comply. The Lords voted to remit the affair to the ordinary courts of justice, before whom, as the Attorney General informed them, it was already determined to try Fitzharris. The Commons maintained that the peers were obliged to receive every impeachment from the Commons, and this indeed seems to have been the first instance of their refusal. They therefore voted that the Lords, in rejecting their impeachment, had denied justice, and had violated the constitution of Parliament. They also declared that whatever inferior court should proceed against Fitzharris, or any one that lay under impeachment, would be guilty of a high breach of privilege. Great heats were likely to ensue, and as the king saw no appearance of any better temper in the commons, he gladly laid hold of the opportunity afforded by a quarrel between the two houses, and he proceeded to a dissolution of the Parliament. The secret was so well kept that the commons had no intimation of it until the black rod came to their door, and summoned them to attend the king at the House of Peers. This vigorous measure, though it might have been foreseen, excited such astonishment in the country party as deprived them of all spirit and reduced them to absolute despair. They were sensible, though too late, that the king had finally taken his resolution, and was determined to endure any extremity rather than submit to those terms which they had resolved to impose upon him. They found that he had patiently waited till affairs should come to full maturity, and having now engaged a national party on his side, had boldly set his enemies at defiance. No parliament they knew would be summoned for some years, and during that long interval the court, though perhaps at the head of an inferior party, yet being possessed of all authority, would have every advantage over a body dispersed and disunited. These reflections crowded upon every one, and all the exclusionists were terrified, lest Charles should follow the blow by some action more violent, and immediately take vengeance on them for their long and obstinate opposition to his measures. The king, on his part, was no less apprehensive, lest despair might prompt them to have recourse to force, and make some sudden attempt upon his person. Both parties, therefore, hurried from Oxford, and in an instant that city, so crowded and busy, was left in its usual emptiness and tranquillity. The court party gathered force from the dispersion and astonishment of their antagonist, and adhered more firmly to the king, whose resolutions, they now saw, could be entirely depended on. The violences of the exclusionists were everywhere exclaimed against and aggravated, and even the reality of the plot, that great engine of their authority, was openly called in question. The clergy, especially, were busy in this great revolution and being moved partly by their own fears partly by the insinuations of the court they represented all their antagonists as sectaries and republicans 
and rejoiced in escaping those perils which they believed to have been hanging over them principles the most opposite to civil liberty were everywhere enforced from the pulpit and adopted in numerous addresses where the king was flattered in his present measures and congratulated on his escape from parliaments could words have been depended on the nation appeared to be running fast into voluntary servitude and seemed even ambitious of resigning into the king's hands all the privileges transmitted to them through so many ages by their gallant ancestors but charles had sagacity enough to distinguish between men's real internal sentiments and the language which zeal and opposition to a contrary faction may sometimes extort from them notwithstanding all these professions of duty and obedience he was resolved not to trust for a long time the people with a new election but to depend entirely on his own economy for alleviating those necessities under which he labored great retrenchments were made in the household even his favorite navy was neglected tangiers though it had cost great sums of money was a few years after abandoned and demolished the mole was entirely destroyed and the garrison being brought over to england served to augment that small army which the king relied on as the solid basis of his authority it had been happy for the nation had charles used his victory with justice and moderation equal to the prudence and dexterity with which he obtained it the first step taken by the court was the trial of fitzharris doubts were raised by the jury with regard to their power of trying him after the concluding vote of the commons but the judges took upon them to decide the question in the affirmative and the jury were obliged to proceed the writing of the libel was clearly proved upon fitzharris the only question was with regard to his intentions he asserted that he was a spy of the court and had accordingly carried the libel to the duchess of portsmouth and he was desirous that the jury should in this transaction consider him as a cheat not as a traitor he failed however somewhat in the proof and was brought in guilty of treason by the jury finding himself entirely in the hands of the king he now retracted all his former impostures with regard to the popish plot and even endeavored to atone for them by new impostures against the country party he affirmed that these fictions had been extorted from him by the suggestions and artifices of treby the recorder and of bethel and cornish the two sheriffs this account he persisted in even at his execution and though men knew that nothing could be depended on which came from one so corrupt and so lost to all sense of honor yet were they inclined from his perseverance to rely somewhat more on his veracity in these last asseverations but it appears that his wife had some connections with mrs wall the favorite maid of the duchess of portsmouth and fitzharris hoped if he persisted in a story agreeable to the court that some favor might on that account be shown to his family it is amusing to reflect on the several lights in which this story has been represented by the opposite factions the country party affirmed that fitzharris had been employed by the court in order to throw the odium of the libel on the exclusionists 
and thereby give rise to a Protestant plot. The court party maintained that the exclusionists had found out Fitzharris, a spy of the ministers, and had set him upon this undertaking from an intention of loading the court with an imputation of such a design upon the exclusionist. Rather than acquit their antagonist, both sides were willing to adopt an account the most intricate and incredible. It was a strange situation in which the people at this time were placed, to be every day tortured with these perplexed stories and inflamed with such dark suspicions against their fellow-citizens. There was no less than the fifteenth false plot, or sham plot, as they were then called, with which the court, it was imagined, had endeavored to load their adversaries. The country party had intended to make use of Fitzharris's evidence against the Duke and the Catholics, and his execution was therefore a great mortification to them. But the king and his ministers were resolved not to be contented with so slender an advantage. They were determined to pursue the victory, and to employ against the exclusionists those very offensive arms, however unfair, which that party had laid up in store against their antagonist. The whole gang of spies, witnesses, informers, suborners, who had so long been supported and encouraged by the leading patriots, finding now that the king was entirely master, turned short upon their old patrons, and offered their service to the ministers. To the disgrace of the court and of the age, they were received with hearty welcome, and their testimony, or rather perjury, and of the age, made use of in order to commit legal murder upon the opposite party. With an air of triumph and derision, it was asked, are not these men good witnesses who have established the popish plot upon whose testimony stafford and so many catholics have been executed and whom you yourselves have so long celebrated as men of credit and veracity you have admitted them into your bosom they are best acquainted with your treasons they are determined in another shape to serve their king and country and you cannot complain that the same measure which you meted to others should now, by a righteous doom or vengeance, be measured out to you. It is certain that the principle of retaliation may serve in some cases as a full apology, in others as an alleviation, for a conduct which would otherwise be exposed to great blame. But these infamous arts, which poison justice in its very source, and break all the bands of human society, are so detestable and dangerous that no pretense of retaliation can be pleaded as an apology or even an alleviation of the crime incurred by them on the contrary the great indignation the king and his ministers felt when formerly exposed to the perjuries of abandoned men the more reluctance should they now have discovered against employing the same instruments of vengeance upon their antagonist the first person on whom the ministers fell was one college a london joiner who had become extremely noted for his zeal against popery and was much connected with shaftesbury and the leaders of the country party for as they relied much upon the populace men of college's rank and station were useful to them college had been in oxford armed with sword and pistol during the sitting of the parliament and this was made the foundation of his crime 
It was pretended that a conspiracy had been entered into to seize the king's person, and detain him in confinement till he should make the concessions demanded of him. The sheriffs of London were in strong opposition to the court, and it was not strange that the grand jury named by them rejected the bill against college. The prisoner was therefore sent to Oxford, where the treason was said to have been committed. Lord Norris, a courtier, was sheriff of the county, and the inhabitants were, in general, devoted to the court party. A jury was named, consisting entirely of royalists, and though they were men of credit and character, yet such was the factious rage which prevailed, that little justice could be expected by the prisoner. Some papers, containing hints and directions for his defense, were taken from him, as he was conducted to his trial, an iniquity which some pretended to justify by alleging that a like violence had been practised against a prisoner daring the fury of the popish plot. Such wild notes of retaliation were at that time propagated by the court party. The witnesses produced against College were Dugdale, Turberville, Haynes, Smith, men who had before given evidence against the Catholics, and whom the jury, for that very reason, regarded as the most perjured villains. College, though beset with so many toils, and oppressed with so many iniquities, defended himself with spirit, courage, capacity, presence of mind, and he invalidated the evidence of the crown by convincing arguments and undoubted testimony. Yet did the jury, after half an hour's deliberation, bring in a verdict against him. The inhuman spectators received the verdict with a shout of applause, but the prisoner was nowise dismayed. At his execution he maintained the same manly fortitude, and still denied the crime imputed to him. His whole conduct and demeanor prove him to have been a man led astray only by the fury of the times, and to have been governed by an honest but indiscreet zeal for his country and his religion. Thus the two parties, actuated by mutual rage, but cooped up within the narrow limits of the law, leveled with poisoned daggers the most deadly blows against each other's breast, and buried in their factious divisions all regard to truth, honor, and humanity. End of section 30, chapter 68, part 4. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.